everybody. Welcome back to another saucy episode of Saltlime Storytime. Sorry, I'm like grabbing my boobs right now. I don't know <laughs> I was why. like, what um, is happening? <laughs> sorry, it's just, it's a defense mechanism. I'm not really sure. Actually, it's truly I do it all the yeah, Absolutely. Um, my name is Allison and I am with my, hmm, uh, I'm trying to think of an adjective for you. I'm with my um, glorious, okay, I'm just going to say, I'm with my Oh, fan- phantasmagoric co-host, Jesticles Nani. <laughs> Happy to be here. I'm sure you are. After that wonderful intro that I just did. This is why Jess usually does the intro. It's just not natural for me. Um, <laughs> well, Jess, how was, how was your week? It's been really good. It's been really good. We are dogs sitting right now, which has been very fun. I am traditionally not a dog person, but I'm hanging out with my favorite dog on the planet. His name's Monty. He's very good. We like him a lot. If you hear him shaking his collar in the background, I do have both doors to this office closed, but it's an echoey house, so my apologies. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been really good. We've had a lot going on. Brenda and I just celebrated our fourth anniversary, so mm-hmm. we've done anniversary weekend to the max we went and got couples massages and had some really yummy dinners and we've really just been making the most of our of our we both took vacations so we've been making the most of our our long weekend and spent a lot of time in the pool because Good. utah's in yeah another heat wave but yeah yeah overall it's been it's been a really lovely week i've really enjoyed it and and we're down to less than six days until I get to see you again. Oh my gosh. So right on the wonderful weekend where you will be celebrating your engagement. And then the next day we will be going to Flogging Molly. Yes. Can't wait. <laughs> Flogging Molly. It's going to be so exciting. Can't wait. Awesome. I, if Allison does not get a, get punched in the face, I'm going to have to mm-hmm. punch her in the face myself. Yes. And it's going to be, it's going to be a lot. So this next yeah. week on the pod after we have gone to Flogging Molly, we'll let you know if Allison and I are still friends. If I've had to punch her, we'll find out. Stay tuned for a report, all of the good things. Mm-hmm. But enough about me. Allison, how was your week? My week has been fine. The new Lord of the Rings TV series mm-hmm. came out on Amazon Prime. And my cousin Kate, who has been a wonderful guest on this podcast, she is obsessed with Lord of the Rings. And she flew home from from California. She flew back to Salt Lake so that she could watch it with her family. And so she did like a kind of a whole movie screening thing. And so I got work off and like went down to watch it with her. And they had like Middle Earth themed cocktails. Like I dressed up as like a weird like Hobbit Gandalf. I just with what I had in the house and and I didn't get a picture. So much fun. I can I'll find one for you. My aunt took a picture and I have yet to download it to my phone. It's cursed. But I I will send you a photo of it. But it was so much fun. We had such a good time. And also my brother came to visit this weekend and I took him to one of my old lady gym classes this morning. And he could hardly go down the stairs. So, that being said, it's not just old lady. It is ladies that make this and this their fitness their entire life. So it will kick your well, ass. Like he was wrecked, and I was wrecked too. It was a hard one. Ugh, I cannot wait until I can go to one of those classes with you. But me too. I honestly have a theory. I think that if Kyle wasn't a white boy rapper, he probably would have been fine. <laughs> 
you can cut that out i just i just that's pretty funny (laughs) that's pretty funny um i enjoyed that kyle is our local troll on the salt lime storytime instagram so we have to we have to give him sass back every so often i i completely agree that that is entirely needed so this is this is a good thing well jess when you're recording this it is september 5th we are getting into fall and it is becoming spooky season very soon of which you guys have no idea how well planned we have the month of october it is going to be so much fun you're gonna spe- shit your pants <laughs> jesus christ just <laughs> throwing up blood absolutely your head will turn around like four times fully it'll be great you'll you'll like wake up on the ceiling it'll be so much fun and so in honor of that jess and i decided to pick a spooky theme to launch us into fall, regardless of the fact that it's still 100 degrees outside, we still can feel the spooky creeping up on us, so. It's true. Unsolved Mysteries, what a better way to kick off the spooky season. So let's, let's go. Um, I will be starting, and today, I will be telling you the eerie story of the Flannan Isle Lighthouse Mystery. Okay. Have you ever heard of this? No lighthouses freak me the fuck out so (laughs) and this will this is gonna get you then this is a mystery that 120 years later has yet to be solved and not even be solved but has yet to have like any clues anything any evidence it's it's insane so my sources for this are the flannan isle lighthouse mystery by bedtime stories on youtube they had a video about it um, there was also a BuzzFeed Unsolved episode on the case, also found on YouTube, an article on Sky History written by B.P. Perry, the Northern Lighthouse Board website. They had like an article about the event. I think they're like the official lighthouse people. I don't ask me anything. Um, And then a uh, Hebridean or Hebridean. Oh, it's yeah, Scottish, obviously. So a Hebridean Connections article about the Flannan Isles and Wikipedia. So let's let's get started here i cannot wait jess take my hand take it okay i would like to take you to a place that i hold close to my heart the bonnie coast of scotland but i regret to inform you the journey i am about to take you on is much less happy than the one i experienced six months ago We are traveling back to a cold night in December in the year of 1900. The place, you ask? A group of uninhabited islands off the western coast of Scotland called the Flannan Isles. On one of these islands, named Eileen Moor, lies a lighthouse facing the cold, endless expanse of the Atlantic Ocean. The black horizon staring back is known for conjuring ice-cold winds gigantic waves, and raging storms. Naturally. It is not for the faint of heart. Only a true Scotsman as sturdy and bra as myself would be up for the task. Okay. So our story begins on the cold night of December 15th, 1900. So not quite your birthday, so you're welcome. So... The transatlantic ship called the Archter passed the Flannan Isles on its way to Edinburgh from Philadelphia. 
Instead of seeing the lighthouse's bright beam illuminating the ocean around them, they saw nothing but a dark, seemingly abandoned lighthouse atop a black cliff. The three men, supposed to be manning the lighthouse, were nowhere in sight. It was enough for the crew of the Archer to know that something was deeply wrong. Upon arriving in Edinburgh three days later, they reported their findings. Regardless of this alarming news, no immediate action could be taken due to the harsh weather. When conditions cleared, the lighthouse relief crew boarded their ship called the Hesperus and made it to the island on December 26th. They were met with a scene identical to that the Archter saw. A still, dark lighthouse atop a rocky cliff with no signs of life. The light was not lit. The lighthouse flag was not raised. They sounded the steamer's horn several times and received no response. The captain of the ship, Captain Harvey, then fired a flare into the sky, but still, the three lighthouse keepers stationed on the island were nowhere to be seen. Captain Harvey then ordered Joseph Moore, the relief lighthouse keeper, to board a small boat and row to shore to see what was going on. Once he got there, he made his way up the 160 slippery steps towards the darkened lighthouse. He glanced to a cliff above him and saw three large black birds with beady black eyes perched, watching his every step. He approached the entrance gate and found it closed. The next two doors he encountered were both tightly shut, just like the gate. However, as he made his way deeper into the lighthouse, he found the kitchen door wide open. He entered and saw nothing amiss other than a single overturned chair in the middle of the floor. The ashes in the fireplace were cold, having not been lit for days. And Jess, all the clocks were stopped. Uh... <laughs> Excuse me? It's terrible. It's truly, truly the worst. So... He then entered the rooms in succession and found, quote, the beds empty just as they had left them in the early morning. It was then that he knew something was seriously wrong. Joseph Moore returned to the Hesperus and reported to the captain what he found. He and a few more men returned again to the island to continue the investigation. Upon entering the empty light room, they noted that everything was in proper order. The lamp was cleaned, the oil fountain was full, and the blinds were in place. It seemed to them that the three men had just disappeared into thin air. Captain Harvey ordered Joseph Moore and three other men to remain stationed on the island to continue the duties of the keepers until they could fetch more aid. Are these people going to disappear too? No. <laughs> no, they're not. No, no. But I'm going to get uh, into the three keepers in a sec. So long before the lighthouse was ever built, the Flannan Isles had a strange energy to them. Starting as early as the 1600s, shepherds used to ferry their sheep to the island to graze. Sick sheep who grazed here would recover from illness, and pregnant sheep often gave birth to twins. On the biggest island, Eileen Moore, lie the ruins of a chapel dedicated to St. Flannan, and that is how the cluster of islands got their name. The practice of ferrying sheep to the islands continued until the 1970s. Interesting. So, these islands had something about them that affected animals, which is so scary, but interesting at the same time. So in December of 1899, one year before the men's disappearance, the lighthouse on the big island, Eileen Moore, was completed. Soon after, four lighthouse keepers were employed. 
They would work a staggering rotation of six weeks on, two weeks off, so there were always three keepers working at a time. On the night of the disappearance, the three men stationed on the island were 43-year-old James Ducat, 40-year-old Donald MacArthur, and 28-year-old Thomas Marshall. Joseph Moore, the fourth keeper, was not on the island as it was his two weeks off. So does that kind of make sense how they... Yeah, yeah. Okay. So... The day after discovering the empty lighthouse, the relief keeper Joseph Moore and his three companions did a more thorough investigation of the island itself. The east landing looked as it did when Joseph was last there on December 7th. Not a single rope was out of place. On the west side of the island, however, it was somewhat different. It was clear the island had been hit by a massive storm. A supply box that was kept over 100 feet above sea level was smashed and its contents were strewn across the ground and rocks below. Iron railings on the side of the path had been bent and twisted out of shape. Part of a metal track had been torn from its concrete anchors and a huge rock weighing more than a ton had been displaced. Uh... This is why lighthouses freak me out. Because, like, they are just built to be pummeled. And Mm -hmm. the sea is scary. The sea is scary. And also, they're just in the middle of nowhere. Like, they exist because the conditions around them are hazardous and they need to guide ships to safety. Yes. Yeah, it's not great. So, (sighs) the turf had also been ripped up from the tops of the cliffs 200 feet above sea level. (laughs) God doesn't want us there. No. (laughs) And I think it goes without saying that there was still no sign of the three missing lighthouse keepers. Mm -hmm. And so while rare, rogue waves of over 100 feet had hit the island before. The BuzzFeed Unsolved episode said that in the years following the incident in the 1950s, one keeper saw a wave of over 300 feet crash into the island it was so tall it wet the lamp tower on the lighthouse and almost swept swept him away so a wave of over 200 feet striking the island itself was not entirely out of question although it would be extremely rare for that to happen further investigation turned up a logbook written by the keepers the last entry was written on at 9 a.m on the 15th of december the same day the arch turn noticed the lighthouse was dark So it was the morning of them likely disappearing. The entry detailed the damage found on the west side, thus proving that the damage had already occurred prior to the disappearance. The only piece of significant evidence found was a raincoat and a pair of boots by the door. It suggests that one of the men went outside in the middle of freezing December in Scotland in the pouring rain without wearing a jacket. Joseph Moore was able to identify the raincoat as belonging to one of the missing keepers, Donald MacArthur. MacArthur only had one jacket, and the thought of him leaving the lighthouse without it in such poor weather is puzzling. They can only speculate as to what happened. So, Robert Muirhead was one of the men searching the island for signs of the missing keepers. As he walked along the path of bent and warped railing, he noticed something odd. Quote, A life buoy fastened to the railings along this path to be used in case of emergency had disappeared, and I thought at first it had been removed for the purpose of being used, but on examining the ropes by which it was fastened, I found that they had not been touched, 
and as pieces of canvas were adhered to the ropes, it was evident that the force of the sea pouring through the railings had, even at this great height, 110 feet above sea level, torn the life buoy off the ropes. Oh? Yeah. Listen, I know that I'm sure it's really pretty and, like, sheep are having twins, but I don't want to go here. Listen, I don't fully blame you for that. Um, <laughs> I I really can't fully. There's a reason they're uninhabited other than this lighthouse. Like, it doesn't sound super habitable to me, but hey, what do I know? And listen, I, I went to Scotland in winter, like, in, the, in February, and... They didn't have as much climate change back then, so it was probably even colder than it was when I was there. And it was the wind. I have never been in, like, rain that sideways and wind whipping you as hard and stinging. Like, it was – at times, it was really intense. Like, I can't even imagine that, but you're out without – like, I was at least able to, like, duck behind a church, like – they weren't able to really duck behind anything. They were being, like, fucking whipped around out there. Like, I can't imagine how insane it must have been. I I, I have a lot of questions, but please keep going. <laughs> but, like, for the force, and I, I might get to this later, but, like, what I really, it didn't really sink in until I'm reading it out loud to you, that the force of water was able to move a one-ton rock. Yes. Bend and warp metal and yeah. rip this life buoy from the ropes I can't even fathom water that powerful. Mm-hmm. Especially water, like, hitting the shore. Like, I can think of water that powerful, like, in the ocean or, like, in a tsunami kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But just, like, a regular old wave with, like, a storm rolling over it. Terrifying. And again, I mean, these eight waves would have been massive. But part of me is, like, that kind of does lead me – I'm getting ahead of myself. But almost to believe – I don't believe something supernatural happened, but, like – that kind of intensity like I just can't even fathom you know but anyway but I guess I did cover that you know tsunami story and it like completely completely yeah but there was like a catalyst for that like I feel like there was I mean there's an earthquake and like sure yeah so like the earth was literally moving under the ocean yeah seems like there like the catalyst of that like makes sense just like a storm causing water to be that strong is crazy to me Mm-hmm. And even if it was just like one wave that hit up there, it would ha- I feel like it would have to be a ton of them to yeah. hit in succession to really at least like move a rock that's like one ton. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And n- n- like nobody else knows either. That's what's so fun about this. Okay. <sighs> so all of these firsthand accounts that I'm talking about were from reports sent to the, nor- to the Northern Lighthouse Board who was heavily investigating the disappearance. Muirhead included in his report a theory as to what happened to the men. Most of the men investigating the island were under the impression that a terrible storm was upon the keepers on the afternoon of December 15th. James Ducat, the 40-year-old keeper, and the 28-year-old Thomas Marshall likely donned their coats and boots and ran to the west side of the island to secure supplies. James Ducat had previously been fined five shillings for losing equipment in a previous storm. He had a wife and four children and could not afford to be fined any more money for lost supplies. It is speculated that a rogue wave of over 100 feet blindsided them and swept the two men out to sea. But that doesn't explain why all three keepers were missing. (laughs) 
So lighthouse protocol required that one man be in the lighthouse at all times. Only something serious could have compelled the third keeper in the lighthouse, Donald MacArthur, to leave his post. It is speculated that MacArthur was in the tower of the lighthouse as the two other men were securing supplies. From his vantage point, he likely saw a large swell approaching the other men. In a hastened attempt to warn them, he ran from his post, knocking over a kitchen chair in the process, and raced into the storm without grabbing his coat. However, he was unable to warn them in time, and all three of them got swept away by this monster wave. So this theory explains why all three keepers were outside at once, the overturned chair, and the raincoat left behind, but this theory still doesn't explain why two doors and the front gate were tightly closed. Like, in his haste, he didn't grab a raincoat, but he, like, shut all the doors into the gate behind him. Like, that That's doesn't make insane. sense I kind of forgot yeah. about that. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. <gasps> Isn't it just so bizarre? But, you know, if the, then part of me was like, okay, well, maybe they were open, but maybe the wind slammed them. But I don't know if they open in or if they open out. And the mm-hmm. gate being closed really confuses me because I don't know if wind could, like close gate if it's like sliding or oh maybe it swings i i don't know but yeah but like to have it latch yeah yeah like to have them all like tightly shut like it it's i don't know it's it just doesn't make sense so okay and also all the clocks were stopped (laughs) so like i wonder if that is paranormal or if they just like weren't wound because back in the day i'm sure they had to like wind the clocks so after a few days it makes sense that they'd be stopped But if the clocks, like, didn't need to be wound, the fact that they were all stopped is extra bone chilling. And it makes me wonder if this story also has, like, a paranormal element to it. Yeah, that's, that's very eerie. Isn't that, I just, I hate that fact. It just freaks me out. It, something about clocks, uh, like, it's, it's, like, typical in, like, horror movies, that a lot of times they will, like, stop clocks when something bad's about to happen. Like, there's something so eerie about clocks mm-hmm. stopping. I don't know. I can't tell you why. As you were talking about this, Brendan shut the bathroom door outside of the room and I jumped. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly, oh, like, okay. Ugh. Clearly, I'm, like, sweating. Like, I'm. this is making me nervous. Anyway. I'm in a landlocked state. <laughs> Yeah, for <laughs> seriously. All right. So Walter Aldebert uh, was a keeper on the Flannan Isles from 1953 to 1957. He had a theory that one man may have been washed into the sea and his companions who were trying to rescue him were washed away by more rogue waves. And so I think that's the other leading theory is one of them got swept away. The others got swept trying to save him or in the attempt mm-hmm. to save the other two and like warn them. All three of them got swept into the ocean. Okay. That still doesn't explain the doors. Maybe the front door, but like Mm-mm. the gate, unless he was jumping, but that's not fast. Yeah. I, I wasn't able to find if the gate like went all the way around like the complex, like if it, if he would have had to pass the gate, but I, I'm pretty sure by the way that other articles talked about it, he would have passed through both of the doorways that had closed doors and the gate itself and all of them Mm -hmm. were tightly shut so and I think one of the doors that was closed was inside the lighthouse so wind doesn't explain that one either no oh I hate it I just I hate it okay okay 
So it's also possible that the men could have been blown off the island by a huge gust of wind. And I will get to why these theories don't really sit with me in a second. But another theory has a more sinister take. It is entirely possible that the isolation of the island and the intense conditions could have led one or more of the keepers to have a psychological breakdown. MacArthur, in particular, had a history of violence, and many speculate he killed the other two men, then, in a fit of regret, jumped off a cliff and killed himself. But the fact that no bodies were ever recovered, and also there were no signs of violence on this island, like, it makes the theory much less likely, but the fact that no bodies were ever recovered in general is, I think, what's so puzzling about it. Because with the waves crashing into the island, I think, I don't know if, like, would they be sucked out again? Like... Because they would just be forced, like, like just pushed, I feel like, just pushed into the rocks. And if not then, like, they would be pushed to the coast of Scotland. The fact that no bodies were recovered, like, it, the way that, like, experts describe the current, it's unlikely that they wouldn't have been recovered had they all been blown into the water or pulled into the water somehow. So, but who knows? I, I don't know how water works. So, okay. <laughs> water mystery. absolutely so obviously we have to nod towards the possibility of alien abduction i won't go much further into that but it's pretty self-explanatory could have been aliens. others it could have been hey i mean we don't have proof that it wasn't and that okay well actually look allison stop it okay so others say that the men left the island in secret in an attempt to escape their deaths or they were kidnapped by uh, foreign spies. So this theories are all over the place. But I do have to say that some of my favorite theories lie in Scottish folklore and legend. On the night of December 15th, one witness claimed to have seen the green glow of a ghost ship manned by a skeletal crew float past the island. <gasps> oh? They say the men <laughs> yeah. They say the men were whisked away to become part of the crew for the rest of eternity. Other whimsical theories include mermaids luring them to their deaths, giant seabirds carrying them to unknown places, and a huge sea serpent eating them alive. Mm -hmm, And do mm -hmm. you remember at the beginning of the story, I told you about three huge black birds watching Joseph Moore make his way to the lighthouse? Yes. People speculate that the keepers had come into contact with some sort of dark magic and were transformed into those three birds. (gasps) Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. And in the official investigation done by the Northern Lighthouse Board, they conclude that the three men were more than likely swept away by a rogue wave. But to this day, no bodies or any other evidence has been found. So the lighthouse continued to be manned until 1971 when it became fully automated. For the 70 years up to this point, there was no other there were no other incidents on the island. And I would like to end with a quote from Robert, uh, Robert Muirhead's report um, sent to the Northern Lighthouse Board. He wrote this on January 8th, 1901. Quote, I visited them, meaning the three keepers. I visited them when the relief was made on the 7th of December and have the melancholy recollection that I was the last person to shake hands with them and bid them adieu. And oh. that is the insane story of the disappearance of the Flannan Isle lighthouse keepers and the fact it is still it's still never been solved to this day. That is so interesting. Oh my gosh. I personally am holding with the bird theory. I think that's I think that's what happened. 
It's I pretty cool, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, lighthouses and, still freak me out, mm-hmm. but absolutely. Oh, and I think I, I think it is important to mention. I didn't put this in the story itself because, like, these facts have been proven to be false, but they are widely spread, and so I think it's important for people to know that they're not false, or like, or else like people will come for me, be like, "You missed this really cool fact." Just know it's not real. So, one of these false um, claims is that. Uh, apparently another set of logbooks were discovered about the keepers in the logbooks marshall says which is one of the keepers marshall says that on the 12th of december there were severe winds the likes of which i have never seen before in 20 years he also said to have reported that ducat was very quiet and donald MacArthur had been crying MacArthur again he was uh had history of violence he was a veteran mariner and he had a reputation for brawling and it would be really strange for him to be crying in response to a storm of which he had seen Mm -hmm. probably a million times log entries on the 13th of december were said to have been stated that the storm was raging and that all three men had been praying this is also puzzling because all three men were experienced lighthouse keepers who were known who like knew that they were in like a secure structure 150 feet above sea level and that had literally just been built a year before like they probably would have known that they were safe inside of it also there had been no reported storms in the area on the 12th 13th and 14th of december so unless it was an extremely isolated storm it's not true and yeah. the final log entry is said to have been made on december 15th stating quote storm ended sea calm God is overall, end quote. So an investigation was made into these claims by Mike Dash, uh, and it was found the logbooks were actually fictional editions made up to, like, spice up the story. And there was one other fictional edition made uh, to the story, which is that there was an uneaten meal left in the kitchen, left on the kitchen table. But Joseph Morris, like, clearly stated in his official report that the kitchen was clean and everything had been put away when he arrived. So if you guys hear those two facts, they're not facts. They were they're false. made up after. Yes. Anyway. Wow. I yeah, that's the story. I I've never I had never heard of it before, and it any chance to talk about Scotland, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, that's so fun. Oh my gosh. I mean, not fun for the people that disappeared, but sure, sure. We love some but, Scottish folklore mm-hmm. thrown into the mix yeah. of a scary occupation. But uh, I think I'm just what really I think what really gets me though is the Benton warped metal. Yeah, that's freaky, and the fact that like. A piece of canvas was like a buoy was ripped apart. Like I, it doesn't anyway. I it really it really this story for some reason is getting to me now more than it did when I was writing it. But <laughs> I love that you're freaking yourself out. No, I am. It's spooky and the clocks. Oh, I hate it. Okay. Yeah. So that's that. Thank you so much. For Thank that. you. Yeah. I have to pee. Cool. Me too. You're back. All right, Allison. Well, mine is definitely a little bit less ethereal than yours and a little bit more bleak, but I am excited to tell you all about my story. So let's get into it. I can't wait. (laughs) I'm trying not to give it away. So (laughs) Allison, Mm -hmm. a little fun fact about you that maybe not a lot of people know is that you're a semi-secret East Coast girly. Your family's like mm. predominantly from Maine and like the Upper East Coast, right? Like, remind yeah, me where your mom's from? Massachusetts. Um, my mom's from Pennsylvania. Okay. 
And my dad's from Massachusetts. That's where all his family lives. My grandma has the slickest Boston accent. It's the funniest thing. Um, and then, like, uh, my aunts, uncles, stuff live in, like, Maine, Massachusetts area. So, yeah. Okay. East Coast heavy. I love it. All right. So, we are going back to your homeland for mm. this the story that I'm doing. This week, I'm going to tell you all about the unsolved case of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. <gasps> What? Are you familiar? No. Okay, this is what's crazy to me is that this is not a bigger, like, I went through a lot of different podcasts and things like this. Like, this is an episode of, like, an early 80s unsolved mystery, but, like, there's not a lot of, like, coverage of this case, probably because it's a little bit bleak, but... Before we get started, I'm going to run through my sources. So, obviously, the Unsolved Mysteries episode, which is from Season 8, it's Episode 11, Wikipedia... And the Unsolved Mysteries fandom, mm. the Connecticut River Valley Killer page, the Front Page Detectives article on the Connecticut River Valley case, a Medium article by Jeffrey Mack on the case, and this is embarrassing, but it was very interesting. I found a Reddit thread about <laughs> this that's like on the R serial killer um, channel, and I found a thread on this unsolved mystery that had some very interesting local commentary on people that claim to be from the area. So we will take, I only use that as a source once in this and we'll take it with a big old grain of salt because it comes from Reddit, but I thought it added some interesting flavor at the end. So okay, yeah, those are my sources. And of course, like I said, the episode, which was for 80s television, a very, very well done episode of unsolved mysteries so it's Did on you youtube watch the episode oh it yes is. Okay. yeah it's on youtube it's for free so unsolved mysteries connecticut valley killer it'll pull it right up so anywho all right since 1978 police have found the bodies of seven young women within a 50 mile radius in the connecticut river valley along the new hampshire vermont border Authorities speculate that six of the seven were forcibly abducted and taken alive to remote wooded areas where they were then brutally murdered. All seven known victims suffered similar excessive stab wounds, but none were sexually assaulted. Police began to suspect that the murders were the work of the same individual. To this day, despite DNA evidence, no suspect has ever been charged in any of these seven murders. Ugh. Have you really never heard of this? No, I really haven't. I, like, I thought that you would you'd be all up in this this no i'm surprised i'm like i know i think i'm surprised it's not more famous like because we i do listen to a bunch of different podcasts i'm a podcast girly and like those podcasts would cover something like this yes and the only podcast i could see that has covered this is there is an unsolved mysteries television podcast that takes the script of the unsolved mystery episode and they just like upload it as a podcast and that is the only one that I could see that's covered this hmm. is this it's Unsolved Mysteries pod version of their episode as a podcast. So let's get into this. I am going to preface this that all of these murders happen close to and across state borders. So I've done my best to provide some like geographical markers to help out. But basically it's happening in New Hampshire across then sometimes crossing into the connecticut border sometimes mm -hmm. in massachusetts it's like right there where all of those borders are along because mm -hmm. the connecticut river kind of is what provides those borders so it's happening all right there so even though it's the connecticut valley killer it's happening in a lot of different states all right <clears throat> as we know the 60s and 80s were the wild wild west for getting away with murder especially in rural areas 
Claremont, a small town south of Hartford, Connecticut, had three young women disappear without a trace in the mid-1980s. In 1985 and 1986, respectively, the remains of two of those three missing women were recovered within 1,000 feet of each other in a wooded area in Kellyville, New Hampshire, which is about a 16-minute drive away from where the women were initially taken. Hmm. So... The condition of the remains made the cause of death hard to determine, but certain factors pointed to multiple stab wounds. Between the recovery of the first and second bodies, a 36-year-old woman was stabbed to death in a frenzied attack inside her home in Saxon River, Vermont. Ten days later, the remains of the third missing woman were found. An autopsy again revealed evidence of multiple stab wounds. So, oh God. With so four- wait, how... So how many days were all these happen in succession? Like, that was, like, really fast. The women disappeared a year apart, but they were found, their bodies were found a year and two years later um, within 10 days of each other. And in those 10 days, another woman was stabbed to death. Okay. Okay. So, and then shortly after that, the third missing woman's remains were found close by to the other remains so holy shit a lot a lot of stabbing but the women had been missing for a while we're gonna get into the timeline a little bit more heavily but okay yes very very quickly they were all found and then another person was killed so oh jesus with four dead bodies and a roughly similar cause of death for all four investigators began looking through prior homicides in the area that fit the same mold They found two previous cases from 1978 and 1981 with eerily similar MOs and victims. Authorities were finally forced to admit the potential of a serial killer at large in the areas. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to glorify the murder of these women. So I'm going to quickly go through the victims and talk a little bit about them. Um, If you have questions, let me know. I do have more than I've written about information of them, but... We're going to go through it. Okay. So just brace yourself. <laughs> so this is we're going to start in 1978 with the first victim that they are for sure is linked. So on October 24th, 1978, 27-year-old Kathy Milliken left work for the day to photograph birds at the Chandler Brook Wetland Preserve in New London, New Hampshire. The next day, her body with at least 29 stab wounds was found only yards away from where she was last seen. So... Additionally, all of these murders happen within a two-hour drive of each other along the same highway. So, again, they're in multiple states, but they are all very close by, Mm -hmm. geographically speaking. So then three years later, on July 25th, 1981, Mary Elizabeth Critchley, a 37-year-old student from the University of Vermont, disappeared near Interstate 91 at the Massachusetts-Vermont border, where she had been hitchhiking to Waterbury, Vermont. She was last seen by a friend who dropped her off near exit 13 of the Massachusetts Turnpike. On August 9th of that same year, her body was found by woodchoppers off Unity Stage Road in Unity, New Hampshire. Due to the rough condition of her body, the medical examiner could not determine a conclusive cause of death, but because of the way she was abducted, they think that she's still connected. Two years after Mary's death, note that we're we're on a two-year spree here, Mm -hmm. two years after Mary's death, Bernice 
Cordomanchi, a 17-year-old nurse's aide, was the first to disappear from Claremont, which I mentioned previously, on May 30th, 1984. She was last seen by her boyfriend's mother, who thought she was headed to see her boyfriend in Newport by hitchhiking along New Hampshire Route 12. In April 1986, two years later, a fisherman happened upon her body near the Sugar River in Newport, New Hampshire. A forensic examination uncovered evidence of knife wounds to the neck and a severe head injury. Only 53 days after Bernice's disappearance, at 2 a.m. on July 22, 1984, 27-year-old Ellen Freed, also a nurse working at Valley Regional Hospital, made a late-night stop to use a payphone in Claremont at Lee's Market. She spoke with her sister on the phone for approximately an hour when she suddenly remarked on a strange car she'd observed circling the parking lot. She stepped away from her the phone briefly to make sure her car's engine would still start and then returned. After speaking for a few minutes longer, Freed ended the call. The next day, she failed to report to work and her car was found abandoned on Jarvis Road, a few miles away from the market where she used the payphone. 18 months later, her remains were found in a wooded area, also near the banks of Sugar, Re- Sugar River in Kellyville. Her post-mortem examination revealed evidence of multiple stab wounds. So can't i'm just gonna pause on this one for a minute hers is particularly they're all really sad hers is particularly sad to me because she still tried to do quote unquote all of the right things she checked to make sure her car was still gonna start she was on the phone with a friend like she was doing all of the things she could possibly do and she was still taken like it's just so so scary it's so scary So, a year after her death, on July 10th, 1985, 27-year-old single mother Eva Morse was seen hitchhiking near the border of Claremont in Charlestown, New Hampshire, on Route 12. This is the last time anyone would see Morse alive, and she, too, was reported missing. In 1986, a year later, Morse's remains were found by loggers about 500 feet away from where Mary Critchley's body had been discovered in 1981. Postmortem examination found evidence of nice wounds to her neck as well. I told you this was heavy. I'm so sorry. No, it's just, it's just. Uh, I think it's yeah. important to give all of these people names. Like I could have kept oh, it vague. No, no, no. I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. I would rather you talk about them than the killer. You yeah, know? that's, that was my thing. And as I was like, all these people deserve names. They're all still on the cold case because none of these people's murders have ever been solved. So that's the other thing. This is all within a community. So Claremont where the so I've mentioned the three women that were that had disappeared and then I'm about to talk about the fourth woman who was stabbed when they were finding the bodies of these three women so the community that they're referencing Claremont is the only city in or is the only town with inhabitants in the county that I'm referencing at in 2020 they had 12,000 people living in the city so in the early 80s much less than that and they're also like it's very rural to get in and out of the city you have to pass through woodland so like it is prime time for hiding bodies and then of mm. course there's a river but nearby it's connected to a lot of different states so it is like also with a, like the hitchhiking as i'm sure you've noticed a lot of these women were hitchhiking so mm-hmm. um really just prime time but on April 15, 1986, 36-year-old Linda Moore was doing yard work outside her home in Saxons River, Vermont, a short distance from the I-9. That evening, her husband returned home to find his wife's dead body bearing multiple stab wounds. 
the crime scene suggested a fierce struggle had taken place, and numerous witnesses reported having seen a slightly stocky, dark-haired man with a blue knapsack lingering near Moore's home the day of the murder. The man was thought to be between 20 and 25 years old, clean-shaven, with a somewhat round face, and wearing dark-rimmed glasses. The following year, a composite sketch was released using these reports. So this is the only murder that does not fit the leave them in the wilderness and pick them up from somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of motive. But because of the insane amount of stab wounds and the fact that there was no sexual assault and nothing was stolen from the home, they've linked it to the serial killer because of how the murder was taking place. So, on January 10th, 1987, 38-year-old nurse Barbara Agnew was returning from a skiing outing with friends in Stratton, Vermont. That evening, a snowplow driver encountered her green BMW at a northbound I-9 rest stop in Hartford, Vermont. The door was cracked, and there was blood on the steering wheel. Three months later, on March 28, 1987, her body was found near an apple tree in Heartland, Vermont. She had been stabbed to death. There was a heavy snowstorm in the area during the night of Agnew's disappearance, and she was a mere 10 miles from her home. So authorities were kind of confused about why she had pulled off onto a rest stop, but you've driven in the East Coast when there's mm-hmm. any sort of weather. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's, a different, it's a different beast than driving in Utah. The snow infrastructure is less, and people don't necessarily have the cars to be able to drive in snow. And so she's probably pulled over to be safe. And you said this was, this was in the winter and this was in the winter. So she disappeared on January 10th and then her body. And it was because it was in winter, her body was very well preserved. And so they were able to use it because the other bodies had all, it took a year to two years to find them where her body only took three months. And because of the cold, they were able to get a better idea of what had actually happened as opposed to kind of piecing it together. So her body really provided a lot of evidence. None of it has been able to be used, but her body provided a lot more evidence than the others were able to because of when her her death happened. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine driving in a car from like the 80s in the weather like that because like mm-hmm. I, I've obviously been to Massachusetts. The heaviest downpour of rain I have ever seen mm-hmm. was came out of absolutely nowhere mm-hmm. in the Massachusetts. I so I would assume that would that would like translate as in it could be like random blizzards and mm-hmm. icy conditions and like just all my family living out there like they'll get you know nor'easters like the big storms from the northeast will come in and they'll dump like feet of snow. Yeah. So I can only imagine that I too would have pulled over. Also. This- homegirl might need like might have had to pee like yeah yeah well and that's the thing is it's like she'd gone for a day of skiing and she'd been with her friends she was probably tired and like staring at a white walled road for that many hours can be scary it's just it's all of these the the other thing that's chilling to me about all of these deaths is that they're so close to the people's homes and their bodies are found close like 16 minutes away close like just chilling in the wilderness and it's just happenstance that they're found. And that's Mm. what's crazy is that it's just like they got lucky that somebody stumbled across their bodies and the killer knew that and was leaving these bodies like in the same places or near the same places over and over and over again because they knew they could get away with it. So... (laughs) 
Finally, after a decade of known killings and suspected additional victims, the killing suddenly stopped when, late in the evening on August 6th, 1988, 22-year-old Jane Borowski, who was seven months pregnant at the time, was returning from a county fair in Keeney, New Hampshire, when she stopped at a closed convenience store in West Swasney to purchase soda from a vending machine. Borowski had returned to her car when she noticed a Jeep Wagner parked next to her. Through her rearview mirror, Borowski then saw the driver of the vehicle walking around the back of her car. Oh! I know. The attacker approached her open window and asked her if the payphone was working. Suddenly, the attacker grabbed Jane and pulled her from the vehicle. She recalls struggling and the man accused her of beating up his girlfriend and asked if she had Massachusetts plates on her car. Borowski responded that she had New Hampshire plates, but this did nothing to stop the attacker. He brutally stabbed her 27 times before driving away and leaving her to die. Oh my and god. She so we're gonna we're gonna play a little bit of I shouldn't be alive, but we are right now. So she, while the attack was happening, ran away from him up a little bit of like a road behind the convenience store, and that's where he finished like stabbing her. And she basically like gave up. Not I mean, gave up is the wrong word, but like she was being stabbed, so she kind of played dead almost. And he got she described him as getting bored and leaving her. Like, oh my God. because she stopped struggling, he got bored and left her to die. Because he was like, well, this isn't fun anymore. Oh, Jesus. I know. So, after being stabbed, I repeat, 27 times, Borowski managed to return to her car and drive two miles to a friend's house for help. As she neared the house, she noticed a vehicle driving in front of her and realized it was her attacker's Jeep. No. No, 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 no. I know. I would lose my goddamn mind. And keep in mind, she is driving a vehicle after getting stabbed repeatedly by, like, a long knife. Mm. I know. I know. Broski finally reached her friend's home and was immediately given aid. Witnesses recall the attacker performing a U-turn and slowly passing the house as Broski was tended to before speeding away into the night. Never to be seen again. No. No. I know. No. I know. Can you imagine? It's. It reminded me a lot of that woman um, in the I Survive story that gets left in a field and crawls mm-hmm. home to get help and is, like, mm-hmm. convinced the, the killer is going to come back. It reminded me a lot of that I Survive story. But Borowski was treated at the hospital where it was determined that the attack had resulted in a severed jugular vein. Two collapsed lungs, a kidney laceration, and severed tendons in her knees and thumb. Fortunately, because lest we forget, she's pregnant. Borowski's baby survived, although she does have some complications from the attack. And Borowski was able to provide authorities with a composite sketch and the first three characters of the attacker's license plates. However... The killing ceased following the attack and the case ran cold. Because again, it's the 80s and DNA evidence is not great. And they're in, they're dealing with rural, a rural police force that doesn't necessarily have the resources or the experience to be dealing with these kinds of things. They're also not finding the bodies until years later. And so a lot of the evidence that's on the bodies is not there. And it's very, very clear to the investigators 
that the investigators did a terrible job. The police really were just like, oh, because a lot of them, because these women were hitchhiking a lot of the time, or they were stopped at convenience stores, or they were driving late at night, it was like, oh, they ran away, or oh, like they hitchhiked, they probably got what was coming to them kind of thing. So the Mm. police investigation on this, it wasn't, uh, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but it wasn't until a private investigator got involved that really anything got forward, got put forward, because a lot of times it was like, they've been gone for two years, we have no evidence, we don't have a body, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of these women weren't being looked for in the way they should have, except for the woman who was skiing because they had her car. Oh, so oh, oh that's so scary i know so do they think that she just got in his car or yeah so they they i i think at the point where they kind of put together that this was like a serial killing happening they kind of came up with the concept that he was stalking these closed convenience stores or these closed gas stations or these rest stops and just finding somebody who looked like they were vulnerable and could he could take advantage of So it seemed to be that they were most of the time forced into a car and then killed in the rural area. Oh, but I remember you saying that she had, there was blood in her car. So he probably like. Knocked her out in the car. Or did, yeah. Oh God, okay. I know, I know. So naturally there are several suspects, but to this day, none have ever been charged. So we're going to go through, we're going to go through the two and a half main two and a half of these so the first one is a man named delbert tallman yes that is his real name delbert tallman god in so in 1984 16 year old heidi martin went for a jog in heartland vermont on martinsville road the next day her body was found in a swampy area behind heartland elementary school she had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death the 21-year-old Delbert Tallman confessed to the crime and was tried. However, he later recanted his confession and was acquitted. Uh, I know. Nearly three years later, Barbara Agnew's body was found approximately one mile from where Martin was discovered, leading authorities to suspect Tallman in the murder. Tallman had resided in Bellows Falls, Springfield, and Windsor, Vermont, as well as Claremont, New Hampshire, the epicenter of most of the Connecticut River Valley killings. He was convicted in 1996 on two counts of lewd and lascivious conduct with a child and was incarcerated at Lake County Prison in Florida for failure to comply with sex offender registration requirements. He was released from prison on October 6, 2010, and has never been charged in any of these murders, including the one he confessed to. He was only in prison because of other crimes he was committing. So, I know. Given the circumstances of Martin's murder and the dearth of information related to the arrest and trial of a suspect, some websites cite Martin's death as as unsolved and part of the killings. There is, however, no evidence presently available to the public that Tallman was involved in any of the other cases. And ultimately, like I said, he's never been tried for any of them. So... Moving on to Gary Westover. In 1997, a 46-year-old Grafton, New Hampshire resident named Gary Westover told his retired uncle, who was a sheriff's deputy, that he had a confession. Westover told his uncle that in 1987, three buddies picked him up from what was described as a night of partying. Allegedly, they loaded Westover and his wheelchair, because he was paraplegic, into their van and set out to Vermont, where they abducted, murdered, and dumped Barbara Agnew's body. Westover, 
I know. Westover provided the names of the three friends. Minion, who is his uncle, shared Westover's information with his wife, daughter, and law enforcement. However, Minion felt that the authorities were not interested in the information and didn't do anything about it. Okay. Um, I'm pissed. I don't I know. know about you. I know. Uh, okay. It gets worse. <laughs> oh. Can't oh, cheery. So, Michael... The final suspect in this crime is Michael Nicoloa. He is by far the primary suspect in these killings. Michael was a Vietnam War veteran with severe PTSD and a penchant for killing civilians in the line of duty, according to his unit. He was tried and acquitted by the U.S. government for these potential war crimes. When he returned from duty, he decided to open a porn shop in Charlottesville, Virginia, called, quote, the pleasure chest, end quote. Oh, my God. Vile vile two weeks later in november 1983 the shop was robbed the business didn't last long and he began what would become a permanent lifestyle as a drifter in 1988 by the time the last known murder related to the connecticut river valley killer occurred he was working as a self-employed drywaller he also made income by selling cocaine just so just just the classiest line yeah So key details of the killings point strongly to Michael because he was known to, quote, hunt humans with a knife, a fact confirmed by multiple war buddies that lead investigator Lynn Marie Carty interviewed. So Lynn Marie was a private investigator hired by one of the victim's mothers. And she basically came in, found out about Michael and was like, what the fuck? How has this guy not tried? So... Of course, I'm sorry. It was, of course, it was a woman. Yes, investigator I know. that it took to. So one of all, the rest, the information I'm about to tell you has all been uncovered by her. So many of the victims were nurses. While this could be coincidental, as the area had a large hospital, there is a connection to Michael. He spent more time in hospitals than most people because he was seeking treatment for his PTSD, and one of his ex-wives, who he openly hated, was a nurse. He had also been confirmed as a as geologically tied to the area by investigators and had the opportunity to commit any of these murders. Because keep in mind, all of them happened on an interstate in between places that he was living throughout the time. So even though he wasn't in Claremont for the entire time that all these murders were happening, he was within a two-hour drive of all of these places during every single one of these murders. So... Carty, the investigator, contacted Borowski to show her photos of the man she believed to be the Connecticut River Valley killer. Borowski was quoted saying, quote, I have no doubt in my mind it was him, end quote. Michael even drove a Jeep Wrangler or a Jeep Wagoner at the same time as Borowski's attack. Okay, okay. In August 2006, one of Gary Westover's, the man previously mentioned, one of Gary Westover's aunts wrote to Anne Agnew, Barbara's sister, with the information originally given by Westover to his uncle. Agnew forwarded the letter to Carty, who ran Michael's name by Westover's aunt, who stated that the name sound quote sounded familiar. Carty believes that authorities have the names Westover provided to his uncle and further speculated that Westover may have become acquainted with Michael at a local VA hospital, although none of this is confirmed because Westover was in a wheelchair because of military involvement. So they could have met at 
the VA hospital and he could have been one of the friends that picked Gary up (gasps) for that night. Because Gary was like, I didn't kill this person. I was basically put into a car and like made to watch as these people like killed this woman. Oh my God. So he's claiming that there are three people involved, but the only one they've ever been able to potentially identify is Michael and they have not done anything about it. So Michael's DNA has been extracted from blood samples and his profile is in the national database. The crime scene evidence yielded DNA, yet none of it has been compared with that of this prime suspect. Despite the strong circumstantial evidence, no further progress has been made on linking Michael's DNA to the victims of the serial killer who stalked his prey and viciously stuffed out the lives of at least eight women. In 2005, he killed his wife and his stepdaughter before killing himself. Oh, so we oh. know he's also capable of murder. Did he stab them? He stabbed his wife. Oh my god. So Ugh. the Reddit thread that I went down had a quote from a now the user is deleted, so I can't attribute the username, but the user wrote, interestingly, some also link him being Michael to the colonial parkway killings since he lived in Virginia when those took place as well. I don't know too much about that connection as there wasn't as much local talk about it. It is interesting to note that the last Connecticut River Valley killing scene bears at least a passing similarity to the colonial parkway cases with a victim's vehicle found abandoned at a rest area facing the opposite direction of their intended destination with, according to some sources, the driver's window rolled down. So they also think that this homeboy Michael was involved in the Colonial Parkway killings, which are also an unsolved string of rest stop murders. Oh, my God. So there are several other potential victims. Um, there is from ranging from 1968 uh, and all in the New Hampshire area, ranging from the ages of 14 to 76 um up all the way through the early 90s um and there have they've found unidentified body parts as well that they've never been able to attribute to victims that seem to be in the same style so that is the horrible unsolved story of the connecticut river valley serial killer although it seems like it could be solvable to me if they would just do some DNA tests. And my theory is on why they haven't is because homeboy is dead. They don't, as like awful as it is, they don't care. Remind me when he died again. Like He what died year? in 2005. So they, wow. I know. Okay. And I mean, the aunt did not provide the information to the investigator on Gary's confession until 2006 so after michael had already died so there is a little bit of a weird timing thing there because gary didn't do his confession until his deathbed in 2004 so there is some weird timing there on that might also be a reason that they haven't said anything but also the fact that he's like potentially and again this is from reddit so take it all with a grain of salt but the fact that he's also connected to another unsolved set of serial killings like yeah And there was this whole thing, one of the articles that I read talked about how, because in the Unsolved Mysteries, I didn't want to get into this because it was very much, it felt to me a little bit like disrespectful of the victims, but the Unsolved Mysteries people brought in a psychologist to do this whole thing on like 
mapping out the psychology of the serial killers and why he was choosing his victims and like it kind of felt a little bit hokey but the 80s i don't know television um i guess this would be the 90s but you know but Mm -hmm. in that they talk about how michael fit the psychological profile of the killer because because of his involvement with the porn shop it was very clear to them that he viewed women as pieces of flesh Mm. in the way that he presented his porn and all of that and but what's interesting is most of the women were not there was one that they suspected might have been sexually assaulted but she was too decomposed to completely confirm and the rest of them were not so like it didn't Mm -hmm. seem to be sexually motivated it was literally just like motivated by killing and rage well he might have been he might have gotten like sexual gratification from just the stabbing itself yeah even if he didn't like like, that could have been what did it for him which is absolutely Mm -hmm. horrible and disgusting um yeah wow what a piece of shit whether I know. he did it or not, he's a fucking piece of shit. I so. know. Whether or not he did it, he's a piece of shit. And whoever – the other thing, too, is the – and I forgot to mention this. I can't believe this. But the investigators also don't think that they're all related. They think that they're copycat murders. So that's another thing is that there is a string of investigators in this that don't believe that this is the work of a serial killer. They think hmm. it's a work of several different killers doing copycats. So – that's also a factor in why it's not been solved is that people can't agree on if it was a serial killer or not. It's just police being shitty, as always. But Wow. This is wow. why I said, now knowing what your story was going to be, I should have had you go last. No, no, no. No, it's just fine. Like, I, that, that is bleak. I just think I, it just shines a light on. Like, there's, most cold cases are cold because of shoddy detective work Um, yes because all of these women were found by non-investigators like they were found by uh wood choppers they were found by fishermen they were found just by people stumbling upon them not people looking for them wow so anyhow wow well well done just um (laughs) again thanks i'm not sure but it i just it's crazy that like, we don't – that this is the first time I've ever – like, researching this is the first time that I'd ever heard about it. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I'm shocked I I had never heard of this before. I, yeah. I'm shocked it's not more popular. It just makes me wonder how many other stories are – I know. – are out there that nobody understands. Yeah. So, anywho, it's my unsolved mystery for you. Wow. Well done. I think that this was – this is a very interesting episode. I think yes. we covered – very like different spectrums of unsolved mysteries because unsolved mystery could be anything yeah yeah truly so and um i probably should have gone with the gold mine but you know hey hey listen there's always room for another unsolved mystery there's always unsolved mysteries to be unsolved so exactly anyhow wow well done jess well guys thank you allison we uh leave you on this in hopefully it's a quite unsatisfying episode actually if i do say so myself there's no resolution in either of the stories and that's what's unsatisfying about it like the content itself i think was very interesting very fun but like it leaves me just like 
that is the issue with wringing my hands i know that is the issue with unsolved murder like mysteries and that was kind of one of the reasons the the like when i was looking at a couple of different murder series to do this one because they it seems pretty clear to me that at the very least he probably michael probably committed some of these murders if they're not all done by the same person like it seems to me that like he probably was the culprit and as frustrating as it is to know that like nothing's being done legally at least like there is a potential concept of like who did it that's true so wow well hopefully those families are are brought closure um Mm -hmm. still recent enough that people out there directly related and affected by it so i i hope that with current dna with you know, a bunch of cold cases kind of being solved in recent years. I hope that mm-hmm. this one's addressed soon. Yeah, especially if it's linked to the Parkway ones as well. Like, it would mm-hmm. just be so – it would be kind of like the Golden State Killer because that's the thing is, like, the Golden State Killer also committed a string of murders and rapes that nobody ever thought was going to get solved but were because of DNA. And, like, it seems like they have all the tools to do that here – and they just haven't yet. And I really hope that they do. Because I read through some of the tributes that the families had regarding all of these women that had that had died. And the tributes were really beautiful. And it was, you know, these were mm. all women who a lot of, because a lot of them were healthcare workers, like, you know, working women in the mid 80s. Like, that's, that's something that was less common. And I don't know. It's just frustrating. It's but. just fucking sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyhow, okay. well, guys, we'll, we'll see you. We'll uh, see you next week for we'll another three, two, week. one shots. Three, two, one shots. It's yeah. going to be a grand old time. We're excited about our guests. So stay tuned. We sure are. And we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye.